You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, Singing the Story of Christ. In this series, we see how Christmas carols and Advent songs are rooted in the rich promises of God, speaking to the deepest longings of the soul and equipping us to bring all we are to God, particularly as we gather together. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. It's good to have you. We did a a little bit of a history lesson last week, which I thought was fun, and we're going to do a little bit one again this week. Um, The year was 1848, and history books would tell you in Europe 1848 has become known as the year of revolutions. Why might that be? Uh, Some people call it the spring of revolutions or the people's revolution, because in Europe, 50 countries revolted at the same time. I would be curious how many of you could name 50 countries in Europe, but 50 of them revolted all at the same time. What's really weird about this period of time is that there was no unifying leadership. There's no like some man or woman that spearheaded and solicited all of these countries to revolt at the same time. It just all kind of happened at the same time. Different, uh, different ideas. Some people wanted to try socialism. Some people wanted to try uh, capitalism. Some people wanted to try different kinds of monarchy. Like there was no set model. There was no set uh, person leading the way forward. They just all revolted at the same time. Each country went in a different direction, different models, different means. It's a really bizarre period of history uh, because of the lack of leadership, uh, the lack of some common goal. And so I think you can distill some common threads down into all the countries, and I've spent some time on this, uh, and I would say there was probably one shared belief that was true in every country and one shared desire that was true in every country. The first, the shared belief was simply, this is not working. This is not working. Uh, I had a therapist tell me once, the pain of staying the same has to exceed that of changing before people will change. Right? So they got to a tipping point in these countries where they were saying, this cannot work any longer. Uh, And the reasons why were different in every country. Some countries were experiencing incredible famine. Some countries were just getting the initial tastes of the Industrial Revolution and, and losing jobs. Some people were just tired of the monarchy. There was famine, social unrest. Discontent is perhaps the best word. Some countries, they just decided starvation wasn't working out for them anymore and they wanted to change. You know, like they were, it, it was not working. So the, if you wanted to say a shared belief in all of these 50 countries, the belief would be 
this is not working. Discontent would be the word. So then the, the desire that was kind of birthed out of that, or I don't know, it could be a chicken or an egg sort of a thing, uh, the desire that wasn't common in all of these countries was a desire to see people treated better. Uh, equality and fairness. An equitable society where people were treated better. So when they were looking at what's not working in our society, in our culture, it all revolved around how people were being treated one way or the other. Each country went about achieving this in different ways. It was often bloody, messy, and I think all, if not, well, certainly most of these revolutions were very short-lived. So they revolted, and a few years later, a short period of time later, things had gone back to the way they were before. One revolution that some of you may have read about was in this country called France. The French Revolution is what we call it. So in 1847, that's the year before the Spring of Revolutions, there was a man, a poet, named, I'm not going to say this right, so sorry to, I don't know, Daniel Wainwright, Jesse, if you guys are watching this, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this French pronunciation. Placide Capot? I don't know. Placide Capot? I don't, I don't know how you say his name. He sat behind his desk, and I think most of us would not look at a poet and be like, there's a revolutionary, or like, that's the guy that's going to tip the scales. Uh, he sat down at his desk, and he did what poets do, which is write a poem, right? That's what I'm, I'm going to stick it to the man, and I'm going to write a poem. <laughs> you know? He did what he could do. He considered the longings of his own heart, the discontent of his own people, and he did what he knew how to do. He wrote a poem. A musician found the poem and put it to music, and the song got really popular. It was soon translated into English, and it really took root in New England. What was interesting during that time period, uh, the U.S. Constitution was a big reason or a big catalyst in many of these places for all of these revolutions. They're basically like, America's a bunch of idiots, and look what they came up with, and look what's going on over there. Maybe we could try something like this. And yet, America, despite its constitution, which greatly influenced all of these countries, we had our own internal discontent around treating people better. Our own country had longings for equality and fairness and change, which is part of the reason why this song took root. So I want you to imagine being in the North in the 1840s in a church coming to Christmas and singing this. Chains shall he break, for the slave is his brother. You think that was a metaphor? You think they were saying, we're in, our sin is like a chain? No, this was an overt attack on the status quo of their day. Placide's song was translated into English, and we called it, O Holy Night. That song was birthed from a longing for change, a belief that people needed to be treated better. That famous line, chains shall he break, for the slave is his brother, uh, it's a poetic rendering of what it says in the original French. The French says, love unites those whom the iron held in chains. Placide believed that there was a different way to change than what was being pursued by his European countrymen. One that wasn't found through violence against neighbor. One that would be perhaps harder to see, yet far more powerful. He, 
He didn't see the power to change as political revolution, but as the birth of a baby. The scriptures fueled his imagination for what could happen because he believed the promises that the scriptures had given him. There's all kinds of rich texts that are underneath this famous song, O Holy Night. I think Isaiah 52 is probably one of the key ones. So the passage that we looked at begins by saying, see, my servant will prosper. There's lots of strange phrases in this Isaiah passage that get translated differently. Some will say he will walk wisely, he will be successful, without giving you going down this long rabbit hole of Hebrew wisdom literature. The essence is saying he will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. Messiah will come and he will get what he wants. He will succeed. He will achieve what he sets out to achieve. And we don't get clarity on what that is, what he's setting out to achieve, until the next chapter, halfway through chapter 53. So we're just kind of left hanging here, being told he will do what he wants to do. He will achieve what he wants. And right after that, again, this is, I'm sorry to be kind of a Hebrew nerd right now. I barely know Hebrew, okay? So don't be impressed. This is me reading other people saying what it means. There's three kind of staccato verbs describing this man, this Messiah who would be successful. We're told that uh, he will be raised up, he will be lifted, and he will be high. Most English translations will say something like he will be highly exalted, he will be high and lifted up. Maybe you've sang a song that says something like that. He will be exalted. So the initial promise of this chapter is this Messiah, this servant will come, he will achieve what he sets out to achieve, and he will be lifted way up. You'll all be able to see him. There'll be no doubt who he is. And if you just leave it at those verses, you can be like, I could get behind this dude. This sounds good. He's going to set out and achieve all that he wants to achieve. He'll be lifted up. He'll be famous. People will look at him. This is the kind of guy you would expect to lead a political revolution. Verse 14, it says, many were amazed when they saw this. You might be tempted to read that and, and think that they were like, wow, or like fireworks. It's, it's not that kind of amazed. It's more of a shocked stunned. It's not impressed. It's more stunned. Why? Well, look at how verse 14 continues. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. From his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. So this one who would be successful, this one who would be highly exalted and lifted up, would be violently beaten and disfigured so badly, you wouldn't think he was a human being. What kind of shape does that guy have to be in to look at him and be not sure if it's a human or not? So once you get to verse 14, does that sound like the power of a revolutionary to you? Does that, does that look like something that is obvious to overthrow the rulers of the world? Does a disfigured face, distorted beyond recognition, look like power to you? Verse 15 says, he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. So here's the, here's the promise. Here's a Christmas promise for you. The servant of God will be successful, and he will be disfigured. He will, he will shock the nations. They will be speechless. They won't know what to say because it doesn't look like power and it doesn't look like revolution. 
In, in your Bible, in many Bibles, Isaiah 52, 12 begins a new section that's, that's typically titled The Suffering Servant. This one sent by God would suffer. You can go to Isaiah 53 and it goes into detail what he would endure. It, it gives an incredible detail in the sufferings, the brutality, the violence that he would endure. But then it, it gets very strange in verse 10 because we're told it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Suffering, pain, humiliation. This was God's revolutionary plan to reconcile his rebellious creation back to himself. This was how God would address the discontent and the longing to change that resides in the human soul. Have you ever had the thought in your own life, this isn't working? Have you ever looked at your relationships or your job or the patterns of silly things you do and you're laying in bed at night saying, why did I do this? This is not working. Have you ever looked out across society or our own little sleepy southern Indiana and said, I wish people were treated better. I wish people were treated differently. You don't even have to go around the world or around the country, just here in our own town. That, that desire to change, that discontent, I've, I think that's part of being human post-Eden. Life is not as it should be. And, and so through the suffering servant is how God would come to address that longing and discontent in the human soul. It's here after saying Messiah would suffer, that he would be beaten, that we're finally told what success means for the suffering servant. What is it that he will achieve? Verse 11 of chapter 53 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. What is this saying? It's saying he will bear our iniquities and he will make us righteous. He will carry away our sins and he will make us right with God. Why did he suffer? Because we deserved to suffer. Why did he suffer? So God could attribute his own goodness to us through the sacrifice of this perfect servant of infinite value. Why did he suffer? Because he loves us and longs to transform us. I think this text had to be in Placide's mind when he wrote, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. We're going to be talking about hope at Christmas Eve, but I don't, are you old enough to be a little bit nervous about hope? Are you, are you old enough, have you lived enough to feel that internal conflict of, can I, I don't know, better play it safe and think the worst. You know how risky it is to hope that maybe something could change again? Do you recognize that feeling where something happens and you feel it rise in you almost as if it caught you off guard? At Christmas, we remember God took matters into his own hands. When that baby was born, those who had eyes to see felt their stoles their souls stir, saying, this is it. Our sad days will be over. 
We looked at that promise last week. Our sins will be forgiven. We will be righteous. What's going on in all the pain and the brutality of Isaiah 52 and 53 is a promise that you can change because you will be changed. We can change now because we have the promise that we will be changed. Here's how one author describes this thrill of hope. It says, His disfigurement was not a punishment for his own sins, as some thought, but instead his sufferings are for the sake of purification that produces a profound change in the attitude of those who behold him. You know what that means? He suffered because you deserve to suffer. He suffered so that you would not have to suffer. And he suffered that through his blood you could be made pure and be reconciled to God. We remember his appearing and look to him. This is what Placide is saying when he says, uh, and the soul felt its worth. He appeared and the soul felt its worth. What does, what does that mean? When you see the Son of God coming to you to live for you and suffer for you, it's an, a confirmation of how valuable you are to God. All of your rebellion, all of your distortions, all of your failures to trust God, all of that has been laid on the shoulders of Jesus at the cross. Have you ever sat back and wondered, why do you long for fairness and for people to be treated better? If we live in a materialist world where, you know, kind of social evolution wins the day, it makes zero sense. Because if you're stronger, if you can oppress somebody, oppress away. Because the strong should subdue the weak to better society. Like, do you see what I'm saying? The, in, the inconsistency of believing in that kind of social evolution and that people should be treated fair? There, you can decide that, but it doesn't make any sense. And yet does not, I mean, as far as I can tell from here, all of you nodded when I said, have you ever looked out and wanted people to be treated better? Why is that? Why do we long for fairness and equality? Why do we long for people to be treated better? Because the human soul is of infinite worth and value because it is made in the image of God. This longing is affirmed in the birth of Christ. You matter this much. God would come to you. He would get involved. He would be a baby. And even more so, your value is affirmed in the death of Christ. He carried your iniquities to make you righteous, to be united with him, to live wisely. And the promise is Messiah will be successful. He will achieve what he sets out to achieve. Again, you can change because you will be changed. There can be revolution in your own life. Did you see the author's last line in that quote? He says, it produces a profound change in the attitude of those who behold him. It's a loose paraphrase of Paul in Romans where he says, if, if Jesus died for you, should you just keep on sinning? Well, no, that's not the point. The point is now we are free to change. And is that still? Yeah. Notice it doesn't say it produces a profound change in the attitude of those who try really hard. It produces a profound change in those who set out an intricate plan for how they're going to do better in 2020. It produces a profound change in those who make resolutions. I don't what, New commitments, and they join a new program, and they, whatever. It produces a profound change in those who behold him. It's, there's lots of things we do to change. As far as I can tell, the ultimate plan 
for change in the scriptures, whatever your issue is, is beholding Jesus, is getting in the presence of Christ. The Apostle John spells this out for us later. In 1 John 3, he says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he's not yet shown us what what we will be like when Christ appears. So he's acknowledging the discontent there. You, you know you're God's child, but you don't always necessarily feel like it. You know you're God's child, but you're not entirely sure what will happen when you're made new again. You understand what I'm saying? You, we live in this tension of saying, okay, we are this now, but we don't quite know what that will mean. If you want some texture to that, can you really imagine what you would be like if you weren't scared ever again? Can you imagine what you'd be like if all that shame you've been carrying and trying to hide from, if, if that shame was just gone? I can kind of think about it but it's not really. We don't know exactly what we will be. And so then John continues, we know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. See what John's saying? You don't know what you're gonna be, but when you see Jesus clearly, he will transform you. Paul will say that we behold the glory of God and we are conformed from one degree of glory to another. The biblical model of change is getting in the presence of Christ, beholding the face of Christ. When he appears, we will see him clearly, and beholding him as he is will change us. Every one of us longs to be changed because we were made to be something more. It's a biblical desire to want to change. And thanks be to God, we have provision for our change now and the promise that we will be changed in the future. And Isaiah sets some of the expectations of what this will actually look like for us that may uh, prepare us from what I think is one of Satan's favorite attacks when the people of God try to really face some of their stuff and change and, and get healthy. The biblical pattern of transformation, how do you do it? You behold the face of Christ. Well, what happens as you do that? The, the pattern, as far as I can tell, is suffering comes before glory. To put it in the context of Jesus' life, crucifixion comes before resurrection. Some of you are scared that you will fail. Maybe I've stirred a little bit of hope in you right now where it's like, oh man, maybe that thing could change. Maybe our marriage could change. Maybe that thing about me I've been wrestling with could change. And as you feel that hope rising, you're like, I'm going to screw it up again. And you try to distance yourself from it. Maybe you're scared. In Christ, you have the guarantee of change. This life or the next, you will change. You will be transformed. And so here's what happens. You start trying to change. And how do you really change as a Christian? Just obey Jesus. Learn to pray and read the Bible and do what he tells you to do. And as you start obeying him, it's probably going to hurt at first. So money just came to my mind, maybe because I talked about year in giving. Let's say you give nothing away. And you're always stressed about your money. And you hear Jesus, you, you start reading the Bible like a maniac. And it says, Jesus says, it's better to give than receive. And you do something really crazy, like say, Lord, what should I do? And he'll say, give some of your money away. How much? I don't care. Just start a little bit. And that you, you say you give $100 away. And that same day, Amazon has a sale on that thing you really wanted. And it's only $72. And you're like, if I hadn't given, I would have, whatever. You, if you're used to being kind of self-centered and hoarding your money, if you start giving it away, you'll probably get scared or, or panicky. Another way to think about it is if you, and I've been through this journey, if you want to talk about it, I love to talk about it. If you've been neglecting the care of your own body, let's say for 35 years in my case, and you're like, I'm going to go to the gym January 2nd, 
and you get out there and you pump the weights, right? How are you going to feel that night or the next morning? Terrible. It's like the first day at Disney World when you live a sedentary lifestyle, and you're, which I do, and you get on the bus at the end of the day and like everything from the waist down hurts. And you're like, I'm never doing that again. That was a mistake. You see how painful that was? When you start trying to obey Jesus and get healthy and face the things that you haven't faced, I'm not going to say always. I will say almost always. It will hurt at first. And then the voice of Satan comes to you and will say, it shouldn't hurt, you know. And so we think we've done something wrong. If you want to behold Jesus' face, learn to pray and learn to obey. You'll do new things. You'll have new habits, new rhythms, and it will often hurt, especially when he starts renovating the deep places in your soul. And when you step into change, it will often be painful at first, and Satan will tell you you're doing something wrong. There's all kinds of things that hurt because you do dumb stuff and I do dumb stuff. I'm not talking about the pain that comes from just making mistakes. There is a Christian pain that comes from obeying. And that kind of pain doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It means the medicine is working. If you've never taken a Sabbath and you're like, I'm going to take a whole 12-hour waking day to not be productive and rest, 15 minutes in, you will feel like a heroin addict going through withdrawals. If you're just sitting there and trying to say, I'm just going to do nothing today, and watch how you freak out. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means the medicine is working. So in the pain of change, we have to be a people who seek the face of Christ, not make the pain go away. Next week, so we'll finish our Songs of Jesus series at Christmas Eve, and then next week, we're going to take a month to talk about prayer. Then we'll get back into the Gospel of Matthew after that. And we're not just going to talk about how to do a pre-meal prayer. I kind of want to do a poll and see how much time we spend praying outside of meals. I'm honestly a little nervous about doing that. Whatever. We're calling this series Dangerous Prayers because these are prayers that if you have the guts to pray them, they will mess with your life. The first one we're talking about is Search Me. And if you sit down and you say, Lord, search my heart, know me. See if there's any distorted way in me. And then you let him talk to you. That's how most conversations work. We say something and then we let the other person. And watch what he begins to expose. That will mess with your life. These are prayers that will shake us up and change us but they will also change us. If you want to change, obey Jesus and learn to pray and do that for 30 or 40 years and you'll be radically different than you are right now. I want, us, I want us to be a people that hold tightly to these promises believing that whatever it is about you that you think is insurmountable, you can change. You will be changed. And I want us to be a people that expect the pain that will come from it. I don't know how we come to think that somehow pain had no place in the Christian life. We want to become a church that delights in praying because we want to change and be in the presence of Christ. So every week we come to communion in part acknowledging our longing to change, to be transformed. Some of you 
you need to acknowledge that what you're doing isn't working and it's time for something new. Um, and that's easy for me to say without knowing your context because whatever you're doing that's not working, it could be, it could be very, very complicated for you. It could involve family, could involve children, could involve a job. I don't know what it is. Some of you need to acknowledge that it's not working. The invitation is to come to Jesus. If you've never come to him and placed your trust in him, come. Be renovated. If you're a Christian, come. Be refreshed. Jesus will be successful. He is high and he is exalted. He suffered for you to carry away your sins and make you right with God, to make you righteous and to bear your iniquities. We have power to change because fundamentally we have the presence of Christ. And that's what we come to remember. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He gave thanks for it and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you're together in remembrance of me. So we remember that what what secures our promise that we will be transformed and we will be like Christ is it's not our promises, it's not our resolutions, it's not our efforts, it's the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you don't believe what this meal symbolizes, we just ask that you would respect um, this is holy time for us, this is sacred time for us, and we would ask that you would honor our beliefs and not participate. We invite you to receive Christ, though, and you can come and join us next week in communion. If you are a Christian... Our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Uh, the cup of wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. There'll be stations in the front and in the back, and there'll be a gluten-free station to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook, or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.